We're going to start off with uh, something that is maybe foreign to uh, most of you, but is, is familiar for those of us in student ministry, which is where I normally get to hang out. And this morning, we're going to start off with some memes. Now, um, I asked some of my students to send me uh, some of their favorite Christian memes, because if you have no idea what a meme is, it's basically a picture or a video uh, that is used as a template uh, to caption. And the, the beautiful thing about the internet is it's a really weird place, and you never know what you're going to get. So uh, we have to be very selective in what memes to use because they get real weird. But we, we picked out some of my favorite Christian memes for us to look at this morning. And so uh, you may think this is the dumbest thing ever, and I'll just say welcome to student ministry. Um, and if not, uh, you may find some humor in So the first one is the difference between a youth pastor greeting students versus greeting adults. Uh, just very... Very casual into very formal very quickly. So that's, that's probably one of my favorites. Uh, the second one is something you may have experienced this morning when it came to greeting time. It's always that potentially awkward moment where you turn to the person and they turn the other way and you just don't know what to do anymore. I have no idea what that creature is. It's terrifying. Um, the third one is a glimpse into Thursday night. Hey, don't go over here invariably the students are going to go where they want to go. I don't know how the, the cat just has such good form on that. I love it. Uh, and then if you're like, I have no idea what, what's happening right now. This last one is kind of a glimpse into where we're going this morning. Again, I have no idea the context of this picture. No idea what's happening. Um, but basically the Old Testament. You have the Israelites worshiping something that isn't God. And it's, we, I just, I don't know. I don't know what's happening. The internet's a weird place. But this is a perfect glimpse into where we're going this morning. We've been in this series called In the Eyes of the Lord, where we've been looking at some of the kings uh, during Israel's time of, of having kings. And, and there's been this thread that has run throughout that says that the king did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, or the king did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And as you read through these stories, most of the time they're pretty messy, and it's hard to know for sure. It says that the king did right in the eyes of the Lord, but you read through the story like we looked at with King Asa last week. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but at the end of his life, it just kind of goes goes downhill really quickly. And so uh, the Bible Project is a, a fantastic organization that makes videos to try and help us understand what's happening in the Bible. And, and so they do a video for every single book of the Bible. And so this is from their video on the book of Kings. And they give us some criteria. There's three criteria, main criteria, that the king of Israel were judged by uh, in the eyes of God. One was, did they worship God alone? Were they only worshiping the God of Israel? Two, did they get rid of all the other idols that were in the land at that time? And three, how faithful were they to the covenant that God had established with the people? And so if you read through these stories of the kings, what you see is it's kind of a checklist. Um, and so it'll say they did evil or they did right, and then they kind of tell the story that maps out how they did in these three areas. And so you'll see underneath there that there's kind of a score sheet of how the northern tribe did and how the southern tribes did. And you can see that even by baseball standards, the northern kingdom is terrible, right? Like it's not even good on any measure. Just zero for 20. No good kings in Israel. If you look at it a whole, eight out of 40 is also not great. Um, so the king, the time of the kings is really not a good period in Israel's history when you look at it on the whole. But this morning, we're going to look at King Ahab, and he was a king in northern Israel. And so you already know he's not a good king. 
But just how bad was he? That's going to be where we pick up this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter 16. And we're going to start in verses 29 and 30. It says, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. So his time overlaps with King Asa that we looked at last week. Right in, the, in Asa's downspin, his downward spiral, Ahab comes to power in the southern kingdom. And then it says this, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than in any of those before him. So right off the bat, we learn not only is Ahab not a good king, he is literally the worst king they have ever had. So not a great start. But what made him so terrible? Let's keep reading. Verse 31. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. And he began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Not what I want on my gravestone, right? Like this is not a good picture. We, we find out just how bad Ahab was. He, he did what was even worse than Jeroboam. So Jeroboam was like the first really bad king. And all the things that he did that aroused the anger of the Lord, Ahab was like, that's ah, no big deal. Let's take it a step further. And so not only did he introduce idol worship, but he like built temples to these foreign gods in Israel and put shrines to them and invited the people of Israel to worship them. And then he married Jezebel, who was the daughter of the king of, of Tyre and Sidon up north, and she hated God. Her goal was to get rid of all of the prophets of God, like kill them all so that Baal alone was worshipped in Israel. This is Ahab. And what we find out is that Ahab, you know, just, we often think of these kings solely in terms of them and the impact that it has on them. But the king had a tremendous responsibility for the people. And so as Ahab turned his heart away from God, as he allowed it to be drawn towards other idols and things like that, the people's hearts also turned. And so you had a group of people who were following the king, but were also trying to figure out how do we follow Yahweh? And their heart was divided. Now at this time, what you begin to see more and more of is the role of the prophets. So the prophets come alongside the kings to either help them do what is right in the eyes of the Lord or yell at them for not doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. So you can see here that there's the, what the role of the prophet is. They speak on God's behalf, they're covenant watchdogs, they call out idolatry and injustice, and they challenge the king and the people to repent and follow the Torah. This is the role. So if you imagine there's a bad king, and you have a prophet whose role is to call him out, they're generally not going to get along very well, right? This is not going to be a, a healthy dynamic where they're listening to each other and they're finding compromise. It's, it's, it's not going to work well. And, and so because of this, Ahab and Jezebel hate Elijah, who is the prophet of Israel at this time. And as a king, for good reason, Elijah basically makes it stop raining in Israel, which 
is kind of a big deal in an agricultural society. And he says, you know what? It's not going to rain, which is funny because Baal was the storm god who was in charge of rain. And, and God's like, uh, actually, let me show you what I can do. And so Ahab and Jezebel hate Elijah. There's this scene that happens in 1 Kings chapter 18 where Elijah is going to go to Ahab and he's going to remind him of just how terrible of a king he is, which is always going to be a good thing to hear. And so Elijah and Ahab meet, and they, Elijah is walking towards Ahab, and Ahab is so blinded. His heart is so far from God. It has been turned away that he looks at the prophet of God and sees him as the bad guy. He says, oh, look who it is, the one who's troubling Israel. And Elijah says, actually, Ahab, that's you and your family. Because you have served other gods, you have drawn the heart of the people away, you are actually the one who is responsible for everything that is happening. So here's what we're going to do. Let's have a little showdown to see which god is actually worth worshiping. Let's see who really is worth our time, our attention, our worship. Here's what we'll do. We'll set up two different altars, and we will... We'll set up a sacrifice, and the only way that the sacrifice is going to be lit is by our God bringing fire down on the altar. That's the only way that, that the fire can be lit. We're like, okay. So he gets together all the prophets of Baal, 450 prophets of Baal against one Elijah, prophet of God. And what we see here is we see a contrast in the heart. We see the heart of someone who is after God, and we see the heart of someone who is completely turned away. But again, Elijah's responsibility is not just to the king, but to the people as well. And so before they start, he goes to the people. This is in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21. He goes to the people and he says, How long will you waver between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. He says, listen, there's, there's a division here. We are going after two different things, and we need to decide. You need to decide. What are you going to worship? Who are you going to worship? Where is your heart ultimately going to land? And we see a really telling response from the people here because they say nothing. Their, their hearts are so divided. They don't know. They are lost. They have been led astray by Ahab. And this, with that, the showdown begins. The prophets of Baal get to go first. 450 of them start praying to God. They start dancing around. They start trying to, to get Baal to bring down fire from heaven, and nothing works. As it continues to go on and on, Elijah gets a little confident, and he starts mocking him like, maybe he's in the bathroom, or maybe he's asleep. Like He like starts calling him out. He's getting confident. And as they get more and more desperate, they begin to cut themselves to show their devotion to Baal. And it doesn't work. Hours and hours and hours go by, no fire. It's embarrassing for them. Then Elijah steps up. And he's going to He's going to make the, the stakes a little bit higher. So he gets a bunch of water and he starts having people pour water. Remember, it hasn't rained. And Elijah's like, we're in a drought. And he's just wasting water, right? Just pouring it on an altar that is going to do the exact opposite of helping it light a fire. And so he fills like a moat around it. Like it's just so much water. But before he prays for this, the fire to come down, he says this. And I think it's really, really interesting. He says, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, 
Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, so that these people will know that you, Yahweh, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Now, I want to pivot here because we see the heart of the issue here is the heart. The people's hearts have been turned away from God. They don't know how to live out what, it, what God has always called them out to because they've been divided. And Elijah's calling it out and saying, here is who our God is. Right after this, he prays, fire comes down, destroys everything, the fire is burnt up, and the people respond. They see Yahweh for who he really is, but Ahab is still, still turned away. But as we read through the story up to this point, if we look at the the Bible up to this point, God's primary concern has always been for the heart of his people. He's always been concerned with the heart of the people being drawn away to worship other gods. That's why he says, don't marry the Canaanite women. Don't go to these other places because it's so easy for your heart to be turned away to worship other gods. And in that process, you're going to miss out on everything that I have for you. So he has always been protective of the hearts of the people. And so what God does throughout the story is he he provides these various things to help the people refocus. So when something happens in the the history of Israel, he says, all right, we're going to celebrate this. We're going to set up a feast. We're going to remember this moment so that you remember who God is and you remember your relation to him. You remember how God brought you out of Egypt. So we're going to celebrate the Passover so that you remember who God is, what he's capable of, how much he cares about you, and we want to remember our relation to him, why he is worth worshiping. We're going to have sacrifices because our heart is important. And when we pursue these other things in the nation, when we go after other gods, when we lose focus, we're going to make these sacrifices to remind us of who God is, that he's a holy God, that we can't just um, abandon and, and not see how it impacts us. So we want to sacrifice so that we have our hearts turned back to him. And then there's these prayers that, that are implemented. And one of those prayers we see in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Moses is giving this teaching to the people, and he says this. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. We see here God's desire for the people of Israel to to devote their whole heart to him, to worship him with everything that they have. Now, what's interesting about the way the people of, of Israel thought about the heart is they didn't know what our brain did. They didn't have neuroscience. They didn't know that this thing actually helps us think and reason and all of that. So for them, they knew that there was something here. They could feel the thump, 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 thump. And they, they associated all of life with the heart. So the heart was where you derived thought from. The heart was where you felt emotion. The heart was where you were able to experience desire. So the heart for them was essentially the seat of all human experience. So to love God with your whole heart meant something much different than we might think about it. Where we might think about, oh, I need to feel certain ways towards God. For them, it was all-encompassing. And so when we look at this, um, Tim Mackey, who is one of the founders of the Bible Project, he says this. He says, every day God's people are called to devote to to God their whole body and mind, feelings and desires, their futures and their failures. This is what it means to love God with your whole heart. And this prayer became known as the Shema. 
It was something that they would pray in the morning and in the evening. And this was intended to be a formative experience for them. It was something that every day, twice a day, they would remember, this is who our God is. He alone is God. And as a result, we worship him. As a result, we devote our whole hearts and minds and strength to him. Like this was a, a formative experience to remind them in the midst of everything that was going on, this is who we are and this is who God is. And you see it in the next couple of verses. It basically says, to paraphrase, everywhere you go and everything that you do, talk about these things. Remind yourself of who God is and what it means to be his people. Let these words form and shape you over and over and over again. And what we see with Ahab is that he had completely rejected this. He had said, that's not who I'm going to be. That is not what I'm going to allow myself to be formed and shaped by. He was going to be formed by political powers. He was going to be formed by relational uh, relationships with people like Jezebel. He was going to be formed by his own personal desires. Those were going to be the things that formed and shaped him. And it impacted his ability to lead the people of Israel, both politically and as the people of God. And where I tend to go is I, I tend to read the story like this one, and I go, I'm so much better than Ahab. If only Ahab were like me, Israel would have been fine. Right? I don't worship other gods. I worship God alone. But what I believe the Bible does is the Bible often reveals the human condition to us. It reveals to us that when left to our own devices, here's how we as people will generally respond. And so if I look at that lens of, of political, relational, personal ways of being formed and shaped, if I take stock of my life, I'm not much different than Ahab. It's very easy for those things to be the things that form and shape my heart, that cause me to, to go after things, after idols. And we go, well, idols seems like a strong word, but I want to look at what Tim Keller says when he talks about idols. He defines them this way. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. And you go, oh, no, no, God's the most important thing to me. But let's look at how he continues to unpack this. He says, an idol is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. Now, if we look at this, we wouldn't use that word in a lot of different areas, but if we use that definition, if we look at what are the things that we look at and we go, if I have that, then I'll have meaning, or, or then I'll feel value. If we look at those things, and we look at the way we act and the way that we respond, I don't know that there is a better word to use than worship. That we are people who are just naturally formed and shaped to worship. The question is, what are we worshiping? Now, David Foster Wallace was an author and a professor, and he gave a commencement speech back in 2005 at Kenyon College. I want you to listen to what he says to these outgoing college graduates. He says, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it 
Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They're the default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. This is spoken from a man who didn't follow Jesus. But he watched people and he said, you know what's crazy about us? Is that we don't always know what we're being formed and shaped by. We don't know the power of our cultural rhythms. We don't know the power of media and all of these things that we experience day in and day out. And because of that, they're these second nature experiences that happen to us without ever knowing that it's happening. And I think there's a lot of wisdom here for us to consider if we sit back. If we just let life happen to us, if we just go through our cultural routines, if I wake up and I check my email and I check social media and I go through my morning routine and then I go to work and I do the normal routine there and then I come home and I get my normal routine at home until the kids go to bed and then I just kind of hit reset and I do it all over again the next day, this is a routine and a rhythm that is shaping my life. And he says we have to be careful we have to be careful because we're not always aware. And this brings us back to Ahab. He made an intentional choice of what he was going to be formed and shaped by. He made an intentional choice to choose to be shaped by anything other than Yahweh. And as a result, his heart was turned away. James K.A. Smith wrote a book called You Are What You Love. And in it he says this, Christian worship we should recognize is essentially a counterformation to those rival liturgies we are often immersed in. Cultural practices that covertly capture our loves and longings, miscalibrating them, orienting us to rival versions of the good life. And this is why worship is the heart of discipleship. Now what he's saying here is he's saying, this thing that we do on Sunday mornings, this hour that we set aside to shift our focus off of everything else and onto God, is a type of counterformation, meaning it pushes back against all the things that press in on us week in and week out, day in and day out, hour in and hour out. The average person experiences about 30,000 ads a day, which means we're being shaped by stuff and we don't even know it. And so we come here into this space and we say, I'm going to set aside this hour I'm going to set aside this time to put my focus on God, to let him form and shape my heart. 
But I'll say this, an hour isn't enough. Think about how much time we have in a week. One hour is not enough to push against the wave of voices and messages and rhythms and patterns that shape us. And so we have to be intentional about what are we going to be formed and shaped by? What are we going to choose to fill our time with? This morning, I would just encourage us to say, we need to fill it with Jesus. People call these, these, these practices spiritual disciplines, these things that we carve out in our lives and our time to say, I'm not going to let the world form and shape my life. I'm going to let that be Jesus' role. I'm going to let him be the primary motivator for why I do the things that I do. But this is going to cause a different type of approach to the way we, we do our relationship with Jesus because we're formed and shaped by so many things that, that teach us that we do things to get a result. I follow, you know, I, I work out so that I'll be healthy. I eat certain foods so that I won't get fat. I do these things so that this will happen. And it's very easy for us to say, I follow Jesus so that I go to heaven. I follow Jesus so that I get something. And we need to understand that in that way of thinking, we have been formed and shaped by a culture of consumerism. Because Jesus is not a means to an end. Jesus is the end. Jesus is the goal. The best thing about Christianity is Jesus and getting to be with Jesus. And so these disciplines remind us of that. They carve out space for us to say, I want to be formed and shaped in all the right ways. So just to give you an example of a few of these that, that might be helpful to you. One of them is solitude and silence. Solitude and silence almost seems like a curse word in our culture, right? There's always noise. You have to have noise. You got to listen to podcasts. You got to listen to the radio. You got to listen to TV. You got to listen to this. You got to listen to that. Noise, noise, noise. And if it's not audible noise, it's visual noise. We always have a screen in front of our face. We are always being inundated with noise. And solitude and silence is a practice that says, you don't get all of my attention all of the time. I'm going to set aside time for Jesus to be the thing that I listen to. I'm going to listen for the ways that Jesus stirs my heart. I'm going to be quiet for long enough that he can actually reveal things in my heart that need to be addressed, that I drown out with noise. So I'm going to carve out time and space for him to speak into my life. Fasting is another one that is, in a culture of consumerism, taboo. Because our culture says, you need this, you need this, you need this, you need to eat this, you need to have this. And fasting says, I need Jesus more than I need anything else. So instead of eating this meal, instead of consuming this thing, I'm going to withhold myself from it so that I can fill it with Jesus. So I can be reminded that even though the world is telling me I need this, I don't. I need Jesus. I need him to fill that hunger that I have. It's what Jesus talks about when he says the hunger and thirst after righteousness. It's I want to consume the right things. You have scripture, you have prayer, which is just a way to talk to God. Mother Teresa had a very weird way of looking at this. She's being interviewed by someone, and he says, what do you say when you pray? She says, I don't say anything. I listen. He goes, okay. Well, what does God say? She said, he doesn't say anything. He listens. And she said, and if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. 
She had this way of viewing prayer as it's an intentional time to be with Jesus, to be formed and shaped by him. And words aren't always the most important thing about prayer. A lot of times it's just the posture of our heart that says, I want to be with you. I want to invite you into the chaos of my life in the big and the small. Jesus, I want to be shaped by you. Some people memorize scripture as just a way to fill their minds with the right things. It sounds like very Awana, um, if and we're like, ah, it's a kid's thing. But we as adults need the word of God to form and shape our hearts in every moment of our day to be reminded of this is who God is. This is who I am in relationship to God. I want to be formed and shaped by him. So often we go to all of these other places to figure out what's wrong with us. And all the while, Jesus is saying, I want to be with you. I want you to be with me, and I want to see if maybe that's the problem. If maybe that's what your heart is really longing for, is this communion with me that you are always supposed to have. In Matthew 6, to paraphrase paraphrase it, Jesus simply says, you can't serve two masters. You're either going to love one or hate the other, be devoted to one or hate the other. He uses money in this particular case, but I think we could fill it with a whole bunch of different things. Money, success, power, All of these things that draw our hearts away from God, and they aren't necessarily bad things, but it doesn't have to be a bad thing to draw our hearts away ultimately from the place that is reserved for God. And so I want to close with two questions for us to consider this morning. The first one is this. How can I choose to be formed and shaped by Jesus this week? Simply by being with him. No agenda, No, Jesus, will you fix all of these things? But Jesus, I want to be with you. I want to learn to be in communion with you. I want to have my heart formed and shaped by you. And secondly, what kind of counterformation needs to take place in my life this week so that I can fully enjoy the life that Jesus has for me? I believe Jesus wants to bring life. I believe Jesus wants to bring rest. But it has to start with a formation of our hearts that only he can provide.